Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. I'm Daniel Strain, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee Anderson. Hello. And we are joined today by Dr. Susan Blackmore. Dr. Blackmore is a writer, lecturer, and broadcaster, and a visiting professor at the University of Plymouth. She has a degree in psychology and physiology from Oxford University, and an MSc and a PhD in parapsychology from the University of Surrey. Sue is also a Zen practitioner. Her research interests include memes, evolutionary theory, consciousness, and meditation. Sue writes for several magazines and newspapers and is a frequent contributor and presenter on radio and television. She is author of over 60 academic articles, about 80 books, contributions, and many other reviews. Her books include The Meme Machine, Conversations on Consciousness, Zen and the Art of Consciousness, and Consciousness and Introduction. Her latest book, just released this month, is Seeing Myself, The New Science of Out-of-Body Experiences. Sue, thank you so much for your time today. I, I really am uh, excited to have you with us. You're welcome. It's great to join you from far, far away. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, uh, before we get into your book, uh, why don't we talk a little bit for our new audience members uh, about your background and, and some of what brought you to this point. Um, I know that uh, you've written a book before called Beyond the Body, which was also uh, considered a definitive book about out-of-body experience research. Um, can you tell us a little bit about not only that, but also your journey up to this point? <laughs> well, it's been a long journey because I'm quite old now and it was all a long time ago. <laughs> the, uh, the book um, Beyond the Body uh, came out in 1982 and so that you know you tell how long ago it is and it, it happened because of this extraordinary experience that I had uh, back in 1970 and I was a student then. You mentioned that, that I was at Oxford. It was my first term there. I was studying physiology and psychology and I um, was just uh, sitting around one evening with some friends. We, I joined the Psychic Research Society. I wasn't actually that interested in psychic phenomena at that time, but you know, it was. I was up going to university, joined loads of things, thought it would all be fun, um, and I kind of got deeply involved in this society. And we had um, Ouija board sessions, which is not a very sensible thing to do, really, because things can go wrong with that. Um, and anyway, uh, this particular evening, after this long, tiring session, and I was sleep deprived anyway because of um, just, you know, <laughs> going to bed too late, getting up for nine o'clock lectures. And I went back to a friend's room to smoke some dope and we you know, and relaxed before bed and sat down to listen to some music. And I started going down this tunnel. And... Remember, this was 1970, so the term near-death experience hadn't even been invented then. I had never heard of going down a tunnel to a bright light. It wasn't, you know, people hadn't heard of it. And um, so I was going down this tunnel, and it was like a tunnel of trees, and there was this roaring noise. I didn't know anything about that either. Um, and there's this roaring noise. And then, then one of my friends asked me, where are you, Sue? Which is a very bizarre question, because I was sitting there right in front of him on the floor but he must have sensed something very odd. And I tried to work out where I was. And I thought, I can't say I'm in a tunnel. Where am I? I know I'm in Vicky's room. I've got to work out where I am. And then it was like, it, it was like I was drifting and floating and then suddenly everything became clear. And it was as though I was looking down from the ceiling on my own body and my two friends below. And I just said, I'm on the ceiling. And the weirdest thing was that I could watch my mouth opening and shutting and saying, I'm on the ceiling. <laughs> so that was pretty weird. And um, so then I went off traveling and my friend Kevin said, you know, where can you go? Can you do this? Have you got a silver cord? Can you move? How big are you? And he just kept on asking questions. He was deeply into astral projection theory, you see, and theosophy and all that stuff, Madame Blavatsky and 
the occult and aura seeing and you know that's the kind of stuff that we were we were involved in and um and you have to imagine me in my hippie garb you know my flowing stuff and headbands and you know all, all that stuff and um so anyway I, wow this is astral projection i went off traveling over the world blah blah it, it, a lot of it to describe is very boring because I went to look at all sorts of things which I couldn't check. I, I tried to check the roofs of Oxford when I left the college and to see what the chimneys and everything were like so that I could check the next day. But everywhere else I went, I couldn't really um, you know, find out the next day whether I'd been right. But interestingly, the whole thing, I, I, st I started out by being an astral body, as, as it were, a, a kind of another body, a double. But then gradually that stopped. And as the minutes and in the end hours, it was about two and a half hours went by, I became a flat sheet, a blob, just a point of awareness and nothing else. It changed dramatically. And then I came back, tried to come back to my body twice. The second time when I came back, I went inside and I got too small. And it was really frightening. Some bits of it were pretty scary. Um, it was very frightening. And so I tried to get bigger. And as I tried to get bigger, I just expanded and expanded until I became a classic mystical experience. And I'd never heard of mystical experiences either. So it really was, it became, I was, there was no separate self. I was everything. Everything was me. I was everything. There's no problem. Everything is absolutely perfect as it is. There's no separation. There's no <clears throat> distinction. A, 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 a profound oneness and stillness and acceptance extraordinary but i didn't know what to make of it and then my friend was still saying well what else is there well <laughs> anyway i enough of that yeah, um, you, well you uh, mentioned uh, several times that you uh, you didn't know anything about these things or we didn't know at the time it wasn't a thing that was commonly you mentioned uh a few times about the different features of it not being a commonly known are you trying to stress that um um, we don't have reason to believe that this is just some sort of influence from the culture at large and you're trying to, to denote yes. that this is a shared experience that comes up yes. from, from its own roots. Yes, uh, I am. I, I, I'm not sure I was uh, totally um, aware that that's what I'm trying to do, but I think you're exactly right. Um, and I'm trying to be clear about what I did and didn't know. So I knew about astral projection because my friend had told me all this stuff. So I assumed that that's what it was. I assumed that my astral body had left the physical and I was traveling on the astral planes. Um, none of us knew then. Um, there had been a little work in the Victorian era um, about deathbed experiences where people actually died but described things as they died because typically then people would die at home with their loved ones around them so we had those descriptions but the whole moody the, the stuff that came out with moody's book life after life um in, in 1975 you know that was that was later so it wasn't popularly known at all so yes i can't have been seeing these things because i'd read about them there's something about the human brain. And this, what you've just asked, raises a big question. Why are these experiences the same or very similar all the world over? Which I now know that they are. You know, I've done studies in different countries and so have lots of other people. And typically I would say that out-of-body experiences, the, the tunnel, the light, the um, uh, out-of-body part, the going to other worlds, these, these happen um, regardless of people's education, um, where they live, what language they speak, where in the world they are. But the last parts, when they go into other worlds and see other beings and so on, those tend to depend entirely on their religion. I didn't know that then either, um, mm. but they do. You know, so, so Christians see pearly gates and all those ghastly books you know i went to heaven and came back and heaven is real and you know all these these books i'm sorry to be so rude about them but i i just can't bear them because they just describe you know this is what heaven is like and then someone describes it a bit different and, and well that's the thing i mean people get really uh, um i mean there's no doubt that people are having some kind of experience but they get very attached to their interpretation of their experience don't yes. they? and that is a real problem I was attached to my interpretation at the time, and that was the interpretation of astral projection. Um, and people, uh, particularly religious people, get very attached to their religion. What happened to me, and I, I'm afraid I haven't answered your first question, I'll briefly do so. It was because of that experience that I tried to find out everything I could. And I wrote the book after I'd learned about Moody and so on, so the book was another 10 years later I was writing it to try to do my best to explain what had happened.
And I couldn't get very far because even by 1980, 81, when I was writing it, we really, we didn't have neuroscience. I mean, we didn't have, you know, the, the, the tools we have now, we didn't have, which is why I've, I've, I've written a new book. But, but going back, back to what you were just saying, the answer seems to be that the experiences are the same the world over because our brains are similar. And the more we learn from neuroscience about why you get tunnels, why you get lights, why you have this dissolution of self, um, it's, it's beginning to fall into place now. And it's fantastic that it is. And that's why I've become so um, you know, obsessed really with going back to something that I wrote about all those years ago, doing it all over again. Yeah, we, we, the science is so different now. It's worth it. And you had kind of a, um, um, you wrote why I'm not a parapsychologist anymore. You had kind of a, a skeptic uh, conversion at some point in, was it the yes. research that brought that about? And how hard that was that emotionally and conceptually in, in your own sense of uh, your, you know, your views and your. You want uh, one word? It would be very. <laughs> Um, and it relates to what you were saying about how people are, are very wedded to their theories. And that's something that I've learned. I mean, if you're going to be a scientist, you should learn right from the word go that you should change your mind when the evidence um, leads you to. That's what it means to be a scientist. And I was, after all, being trained as a scientist in, in physiology and psychology. And... Um, I should have been learning that, and indeed I was learning that. But it's remarkable how many scientists in many fields will hang on to their theory, grim <laughs> clutches, um, rather than change their minds. The best scientists are, the, of course, the ones who find out they're wrong and learn from, from the mistakes. I mean, I think I've learned more from the things I got wrong than the things I've got right. And it's much more fun when you're right, but <laughs> you learn a lot when you're wrong. So what happened was, that experience was so, it, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, and anyone who's listening who's had one of these experiences will probably agree with me. It is so vivid and so clear and so absolutely real and everything feels so right that it's very hard to do anything other than go, wow, my, my something, my soul, my spirit, my astral body has left my physical body. Look, there it is down there. I don't need to be in there anymore. It is mm. so realistic. It gives you that impression. And I haven't forgotten that. And sometimes people say to me, oh, you, 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 you know, you've just forgotten what it's like. You don't believe how real it is. No, I mm. agree with people who say it was the most realistic and vivid experience of my life. And I, I yeah. can say that even now all these years later. How many years later is it now? 47 years later. Um, so uh, it's not surprising that I came to the conclusion that my astral body had left my physical body. Um, a, a philosopher friend of mine, Thomas Metzinger, German philosopher, he said, um, it's almost impossible that for anyone who has such an experience not to become an ontological dualist afterwards. And that's exactly what I became. I, you know, believed in two things, mind and body, you know, the soul or the my mind is separate from my body. And of course, there are many people claiming that now, Pim Van Lommel and Peter Fennick and Sam Pania, these people working on near-death experiences who, who are talking about endless consciousness and consciousness after death and so on and so on. So that's the kind of um, very obvious jump that I made, but it's not logical. It's <laughs> I can understand why I made that leap, why I was so sure that something had left the body. But looking back, uh, I, I don't think that anymore. And what changed my mind was evidence. I decided, <laughs> just imagine me, you know, um, maybe hard now, but, you know, imagine me aged eight, 19, really excited about being at university, really excited about psychology and learning about, we didn't learn about the mind, we learned about rats running in mazes and so on, but never mind, it was all exciting and thrilling. And, and now I've made this great discovery that the mind is separate from the body. I'm going to prove this to all my closed-minded lecturers, all those ones who are talking about rats and cutting up rat brains and all those things that we did and pigeons learning to press levers and what have you. Um, I'm going to prove to them that that's not the point. You know, there really is more beyond. So that's what I tried to do. And to the horror of my, um, my favorite tutor, my main tutor in, in college, um, I turned down a place to do a sensible PhD at Sussex University and, you know, various other things. And instead of becoming a sensible psychologist or physiologist, 
I uh, got a job, tried to earn some money and funded my way through a PhD on parapsychology. And I had this grand theory that psychic phenomena happen because there's a sort of psychic field like the Akashic records or something. And everything we ever think or do is stored out there in the great store, you know. And memory and ESP are basically the same thing. Uh, it's just when it's your own memory, you're drawing it from by similarity with things that you've been involved in whereas telepathy is doing the same thing it's a bit harder because it's somebody else's memory but it's the same process really so i set to work and did years of experiments on esp and memory and i never found any esp and i kept on looking and i kept on looking and when i couldn't find any telepathy i looked for clairvoyance and i couldn't find any clairvoyance i looked for precognition and i couldn't find any precognition i looked for psychokinesis couldn't find any of that i go and sit in haunted houses I can't tell you how many haunted houses I've sat in and not seen the ghost. Um, but that's because ghosts run away from me, you know. That's because I am a scientific experimenter. So, of course, I don't see Which we now know is a, uh, a mimetic survival tool to, uh, of, of uh, meme complexes to preserve themselves. Uh, yes, with the very good point. Right? <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right there. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crafty trick. Um, I don't think I ever fell for it, but lots of people do. But anyway, um, I, I studied poltergeists. And then I, I knew because I'd been trained as a tarot reader by then, and I was doing crystal balls and all sorts, and I was training as a witch. Um, and so, you know, I knew tarot cards worked. So I did some experiments with those. And those showed me, at least the evidence seemed to show me, that they work by body language, by what magicians call cold reading um, by all natural processes and you have to have the person in front of you or at least speaking to them um, for it to work it doesn't work with just laying out the cards so you know everything I tried went wrong and you asked how hard was it and I said very it was hard because I think what happened was I would do an experiment and I'd go Oh dear, another failure. Yeah, but there's got to be something because I was so convinced and I kept going and kept going. But there came a point and it's a kind of um, one of those memories that you, you know, you, you can remember exactly where you were at the time. <laughs> we know some of those memories mm -hmm. are false and this one could be, but this is how it is. I was lying in the bath in my house in Guildford, which is where I was doing my PhD. And I was just mulling over, what am I going to do next? Another experiment had failed and I was mulling it all over in the bath and I thought, what if it's all rubbish? What if there's nothing in any of this? And I can still feel, you know, I mean, you're asking, I'm sort of reflecting on it now. I can still feel the total upset in my tummy somewhere and my heart beating. Well, what if it's all not true? And here I am with my, well, I'm not in the bath, but you know, with my hippie garb and my, you know, my, my going around reading people's tarot cards and, you know, all that stuff. And if it's all rubbish, then I, you know, it was not just a small change. It was changing who I was, who everybody else thought I was, what I was doing with a lot of my time. But I changed because what's the point of going on looking for something that doesn't exist? I mean, I did keep, keep on doing work in parapsychology right up until... The, uh, the, the the millennium really but i i became but by 1980 when i finished my phd i i'd become skeptical about it all one of the things that uh i think is the reason why so many of us here at the society are so excited about your work and what you do and such big fans is because you're not just a debunker uh yeah Right. is much deeper and more broad than that and you ha have it's it's not just about disproving things or discrediting things or being skeptic but you found um this richness of you know other wonderful aspects of reality and for example um you're into zen and you talk about zen and you've uh written books on it and I'm interested in this uh, this mixture of your science and your practice and uh, these this whole new view that is possible um, where the two are one where you know obviously when a person is doing science it needs to be uh, you know the the standards of science are their own and you do the science in a scientific way but outside of the lab 
the laypersons and the scientists themselves can take those products of science and have them fully integrated into their their uh, spirituality, for lack of a better word, their practices, their contemplative uh, arts, their self-development. Um, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on how what you discovered after this this moment um, affected you. Right. I, I, I'll just go back to the first bit of your question there about the debunking very briefly. I'm really pleased you said that because um, some the publisher was, was writing some blurb about my book and they said, oh, and she debunks the out-of-body experience. And I'm like, no, don't say that. Ah! Um, so I'm glad you picked up on that because no, what happened to me after, yes, I might debunk a claim that somebody saw a, a, a ghost that it was, you know, a dead person or something like that. Um, but, but very quickly, as I became skeptical, I started to think, well, what was that experience then? And what, what are people seeing when they see ghosts? There's something. These experiences really affect people deeply. Something's got to be going on. I want to find out what it is. And that's not debunking. That is taking a different view. It's saying, okay, here's an amazing experience. Let's think about this. Um, that explanation, astral projection, life after death, now seems to be wrong what other explanation are there and that's been really the story of my life from from when i became skeptical turning to your other much more profound point the the way you put it is very interesting because i suppose for the first 30 years or so after that i i was searching and searching both in science and in my private life and what i was searching for wasn't entirely clear, perhaps still isn't entirely clear. It's something like, ah, what is this? Ah, this being whatever. I mean, anything I can see or anything I can feel, what is it? How is it possible to feel anything or see anything or anything at all? Ah. Um, and so I was searching with science, thinking understanding the brain and understanding the mind and the psychology surely will help. But then I was also searching because of those profound feelings that I'd had in that initial experience, because of the way it changed me. I mean, you know, an unforgettable experience like that. There were so many things I couldn't understand about it. Um, and so I, I had done all the searching of, you know, training to be a witch and these kinds of things. I then thought, well, I tried meditation and, and tried various forms of meditation briefly. And then towards, oh, must have been, about 1979, 80, something like that, I came across John Crook, a fantastic Zen teacher in Bristol. And he just did evening classes and I went along. And then I went on my first retreat in 1982. And it, actually what he was teaching later was Chan, which is the, um, the Chinese precursor to Zen. The, 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 the teachings went from India into China and then eventually to, to Japan. And... This suited me. I think there were two reasons why it suited me. One was John was a very congenial um, Cambridge educated <laughs> Western scientist, um, a biologist and ethologist. Uh, so, you know, it, we, we had a shared world and I think that, that suited me a lot better than, you know, a, a, a guru from, from the East. Um, and his attitude was very down to earth. And no, you don't have to believe in, you know, personal reincarnation and stuff like that. You just have to practice. You just have to do your hours on the cushion. You have to sit there and you have to watch what happens. And, you know, still the mind. So that suited me. And I think another reason it suited me was because it's pretty stark and hard. And I think I was pretty hard on myself. I think I hated myself very much and felt that I was wicked and didn't deserve anything. And, you know, therefore the, the kind of hard strain of Zen, you know, sit down for hours and don't move, <laughs> stare at a white wall. <laughs> it's sort of a bit laughable now because it, at its heart, Zen is not horrible and <laughs> like that, but I think that appealed to me. So coming back to your question or, or what you were saying there about how do the two meld together, I suppose they stayed separate for probably most of my life, probably, you know, 30 years or whatever. I thought of my Zen practice as something I did at home, along with, you know, gardening and whatever else I might do, painting or something, um, as part of my private life. And my science was what I'm doing um, more publicly. But they just, I didn't have to bring them together. They just came together. 
um, in, in wonderful ways. Partly because the kinds of people, as I've explained, that other people who, who um, joined with John Crook um, in that group were also kind of science-minded and, you know, not into waffly speculation. Um, but also because science, I mean, as, as we've watched what's happened to the, the ideas about self over the past few decades, uh, there are lots and lots of scientists and philosophers agonizing about what is the self. And we now have some knowledge about which bits of the brain are constructing which aspects of the self. And all that relates to out of body experiences as well. So the two have naturally come together and I don't really distinguish them now. When I sit and I meditate every day, I have done for hmm, probably coming on for 35 years now. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think, oh, this is my private meditation. Oh, now I'm sitting at my desk writing. This is my science um, because I write about Zen and, and, the, and the practice informs the questions. Um, my daughter and I are just working on the third edition of my big textbook on consciousness. And in there we start, I, the previous two editions both start with welcome perplexity. The more perplexed you are, the better because the, the mystery of consciousness is so difficult. What is it? I mean, how can slushy chemicals and brain cells and everything be related to this experience of hearing your voice coming from wherever you are. You know, it, it's, it's just I mean, serious. Even if you're a naturalist, there, there's, there's just this amazing reality that why should any group of atoms bouncing off of each other, no matter how complex, produce this first-person sensation of qualia? Hang on, let me stop you there. <laughs> I mean, I can see you're kind of struggling for the words. I struggled before you and I said, how could this sloshy brain relate to, which is the most nebulous connection I can give it. You said it produces qualia. Now, if you, I'm being really awkward here, but that, you know, it's, it's worth it because it's so exciting trying to understand this problem. If you say that, that, that the, the brain or the nerve cells or the collection of atoms produce consciousness, I've created a duality, right? Yeah, like, exactly. You, you've mm -hmm. already hit duality, which is why I yeah. tried to avoid it. And if you say <laughs> there are qualia, well, there are some people who would say that's also a kind of duality. You're kind of making these qualia being the, the, the qualitative aspects of, you know, I'm looking at an orange box that happens to be sitting on the end of my desk there, and it's bright orange. The, the oranginess, you know, is the qualia. Now, if you, if you ha give them a name and call them, oh, the oranginess, you know, that's another kind of a, of a duality. And then you get yourself into the hard problem. You think, well, how does a brain cell in the color bit of the visual cortex at the back of the brain, how does that produce this qualia, this experience of oranginess? Mystery. But if we don't allow ourselves to say that, what do we say? Yeah. Well, maybe the problem is that when we use the word qualia or whatever word we use, um, we're thinking of it as a noun rather than a verb. Yes. Does it? So you would then ask, does it help to say, well, this is something oranging. So is my brain oranging? You could say there's a process and we, we know an awful lot about vision. We know a lot more about than other senses. So we can say that when I'm looking at that directly at that orange box, uh, that there are within the color opponent system, there is more activity in the uh, in one part of it than another and this is all happening in v4 v5 wherever it is um, and we could you know look at that in detail now that's a process but we haven't got away from the problem by calling it a process because why should that the you know those chemicals going across the the membranes of the of the neurons the um uh, the neurotransmitters jumping across the synapses all of these things okay they're processes but what makes them orange Mm -hmm. Dan Dennett in his wonderful book, Consciousness Explained, which I still think is the, I mean, lots of people disagree with me, but I think it's the, the best book ever and still is on consciousness, 1991. He says, um, well, what is there in the brain? Um, there's certainly no pigment. There's no orange pigment in there. So could there be figment? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's well, what we left with, a figment. So it's really difficult if you set it up that way. So uh, when you talked about the hard question, it made me think of David Chalmers and uh, hard problem. The hard question is something else. Yeah, the hard, hard problem is Chalmers is one. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, so I know that you're, you're friends with Dr. Dennett and you've interacted with him and uh, 
on the the Dennett and, Chalmers. They, and Dave Chalmers. Yeah, and, and on that spectrum between these two views, um, I'm uh, somewhat surprised to find you on the Dennett end of it. Um, really? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I tend to veer more toward Chalmers' interpretation, but I wouldn't go so far as panpsychism necessarily. But um, it seems like to me that uh, Dan Dennett is kind of denying the only thing that we that we really do know like technically in the in the matrix sense we don't really know that this universe is here we have to concede this first assumption before all of science then can be uh can work but there is that first assumption but the one thing that we we aren't assuming the one thing that we know for sure is that at least there is one solitary experience of being like for me, I know it's only me but you no know, what's producing it or or anything like that we have to start making assumptions then um, now I think it's a very good practical assumption to make because you can't get do anything in life without assuming yes okay I'm sitting here this is happening this is real and there are atoms, and then I'm going to do these experiments, and then I get this data, and the data is legitimate if it follows the right procedures, and I haven't made any mistakes. So that's all practical and everything, but um, you know, maybe I'm I'm not understanding Dan Dennett's point. Ah, well, it's very hard. In general, I think the problem is harder than you're allowing, and. You know, it really, 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 really hard. It's really hard. And that to my, I remind myself of that when I'm yet again not understanding and having, you know, going, oh, I don't understand. Yes, you don't understand because it really is hard. Let me, let me respond to what you said in two ways. The first way is a kind of more objective way. You said you were surprised I'm more Donetian than Shamazarian, if there's that word. <laughs> um, uh, I... I disagree with Chalmers fundamentally about the hard problem. The hard problem is specified by him as the problem of how can subjective experiences arise from objective activity in the brain. So this arise from is the same as your produces or similar to your produces and it's dualist and he admits it's dualist, but he says it's not dualist in the pernicious sort of Cartesian sense um, or, or other kind of ontological kinds of dualism. I'm not sure that he gets away with that. I don't have your squeamishness about panpsychism. I have a slightly different version of it that I toy with from time to time, um, which I can tell you about later if, if you want. So, I, you know, I'm not objecting that out of hand. I think there, are, there, there is room for that maybe. But as far as Dennett is concerned, there are lots of things that don't agree with Dennett on, particularly about free will. I absolutely disagree with him about that. But when it comes to consciousness, what he's saying is very hard to understand. His theory of multiple drafts is very difficult. But if I try to explain it <clears throat> briefly, let me say what I think, which is basically very similar to Dennett, is we are so deeply deluded about our own minds that we fall into these traps, saying that something produces something, or these dualist traps of the kinds we, you and I have just discussed. How do we get undeluded? Well, Meditation is one of those ways of getting undiluted. Um, Dennett does not meditate. And I have to say, when I first met him, I said, it's amazing how close your ideas are to those of the Buddha. And he was like, what? You know, I know about that. <laughs> I'm surprised to hear that. I would have thought that uh, Dave Chalmers did have that kind of experience. Uh, oh, I, I, yes, I think Dave Chalmers has more experience than that. And, and Dan definitely isn't interested in personal practice whether it's meditation or mindfulness or anything else. Nevertheless, he says that the self is a benign user illusion. It's, it's an illusion. The self is not what it seems to be. It's not, as the Buddha would say, I mean, the Buddha would say, mm, right. the self is not a continuing permanent entity. It's ever-changing, coming, disappearing, you know, uh, arising and falling away. It's impermanent like everything else. And Dan would say the same, but Dan obviously being in the modern world would talk about how the brain constructs the illusion and how the illusion comes and goes and so on. So in that sense, they're very similar. But um, the, his theory of multiple drafts 
is so difficult to understand because it's so counterintuitive. But basically, it's this. At any time, the brain is doing multiple things all at once. The multiple drafts he talks about are like if I'm looking at, um, there's a book in front of me, <laughs> book I'm <laughs> the previous edition of the consciousness book with all its pictures in it and i'm looking at this book and as i'm looking and moving my eyes and so on right going through the brain are different um uh, interpretations of that you know in the visual system there's all the visual bits and they're being processed and going through and then i'm hearing what you're saying and i'm hearing what i'm saying and that's going through in different bits of the brain all these things are going on and there is no answer to the question which of them are conscious this is absolutely fundamental in Dan, Dan's view and my own. The typical view in the science of consciousness is that some processes in the brain are conscious ones and others aren't. Whereas Dan's view is, no, that's not true. It's a post hoc attribution. It's after the fact. So what happens, all these multiple drafts are going on in the brain and then something happens, like somebody asks a question or you have to do something, you have to move, you have to pick up something. And he calls these probes. And wherever that probe hits, so if someone asks a question, wherever these multiple drafts are at that moment, that an output will come and you'll say <clears throat> whatever in, in reply to the question. You then think, ah, I must have been conscious of that. <clears throat> but that is just an attribution. There is actually no such thing as whether you are conscious of something or not, whether any brain process is conscious or not, uh, whether any actions are conscious or not. We call them that. It's a convenient way of, of um, describing how much we know about them or are able to say. But there is actually no, no additional thing that we call consciousness that is added on to some and not others. That's the heart of his kind of view. And this kind of view has been uh, recently called illusionism. There's a whole um, new issue out in the Journal of Consciousness Studies called Illusionism, which I've contributed to, and Dan Dennett has as well, and Graziano and various other people, uh, Nick Humphrey, all of whom roughly take the view that we're deluded about consciousness. Now, I want to, to move from there to what I learn in my meditation. Now, I sit at my meditation, and let's suppose I'm just sitting in the garden, as I might be today, this morning, and there's birds' noises, and there's river is going by, and there's other sounds of distant traffic, or whatever it might be. All these things are just flowing through. Now, you said there's one thing we know. Well, in that moment, you could say that I know something. But the more I meditate, and the more deeply I meditate, and the decades and decades of meditating, the less obvious that is. Because it becomes more obvious that there's just stuff arising and falling away. There isn't a me knowing now I'm here at all. There's just the stuff. Take some settling down. It doesn't happen in the first minute of the meditation, but after a little while. And the, the self becomes much looser. And I'm not sure that I know anything at all. Sure. If I start speaking or telling myself what I know, then, okay, now I know I'm sitting by the river. But only because I said that. A moment before, yeah. there was just stuff. And I can't, you know... When you stop talking in your own inner mind and you stop waffling about stuff, then that sense of knowing goes away. And before I shut up, I'll give you one, one <laughs> other example, which I wrote about in my book, Zen and the Art of Consciousness, which really hits uh, on your point. I often ask myself and, get, and my students, am I conscious now? And the answer always seems to be yes, because whenever you ask yourself that question, you always are. I mean, you ask it, oh, yes, of course, here I am. But it's very odd when you ask that question. I don't know if this happened to you just now, but it might have. Because I made you ask the question, it's almost a kind of waking up. It's just kind of like, oh, yes, here I am. So now the question is, well, what was going on just a moment before? What, what was I conscious of a moment before well i have spent a lot of time in meditation looking into that question what was i conscious of a moment ago and the more i've looked into that question the more i know that i don't know i haven't a clue because i can i can feel as it were loads and loads of multiple drafts i think they would be called i can i've called them backward strings but you know uh, backward streams but i can think right now oh 
that humming, gosh, something seems to have been hearing that humming all along. And oh, the feel of my bum on the kneely stool, um, you know, and my knees on it. Um, oh, I, but I was conscious of that, wasn't I? But I wouldn't have been if I hadn't just asked me. And what about those trees? Do you know, while I've been talking, I've been watching those trees blowing outside the window, but I wasn't aware of that, or was I? Well, what was I aware of a moment before I asked? I haven't a clue. And if I haven't a clue, then nobody does. So here is a real challenge for the science of consciousness. If Dennett and I and other illusionists are right, that there's no answer to the question, what was I conscious of a moment before I asked, um, then we'll never find the neural correlates of consciousness because there isn't a separate thing called consciousness. So the whole search for the neural correlates is completely doomed. If we're wrong, then somebody will find out the magic, whatever it is, the neural correlates of what makes some process conscious and another one not. So, you know, I know where I'm putting my um, money for the future, <laughs> money really, but you know, my expectation for the future, I'm very happy and it'll go one way or the other. And but, having changed my mind big time in the past, I could do it again if I had to. So I, I have all kinds of branching questions about this, trying to figure out how to organize them in my mind. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I just talked no, no, to you. I, I love everything you just said. Um, wonderful stuff. I, I'm wondering if maybe this is maybe a, just a definitional problem, just a simple, like when you talked about the nature of the self, I also uh, happen to subscribe to that, that Buddhist notion of the, the self being uh, illusory. Um, and uh, I think in Buddhism, they call it composed of aggregates. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't use that. We don't describe it that way now, but basically the same kind of concept. And, uh, I, I don't see any inconsistency there because I'm kind of surprised to see Chalmers concept of qualia being like, you're not equating his concept of qualia with self or personhood. No. Are you? Because no. it seems like you were talking about that, but Chalmers to me, when he describes qualia sounds a lot more like what he's talking about is, if you strip away memories and you strip away opinions and you strip away uh, um, all of the data that in aggregates that make up the self, there's still uh, like, if we're, if we're going to say what Dennis says that this, this idea of consciousness is a delusion or an illusion, then what is it that's having the delusion? What is it that's having the illusion? That an illusion is an experience by definition. So how can, how can we say that the experience itself is illusory? Um, so if you get like, uh, I'm also wondering about. Can, I, can I just stop you there? Because you, you, you're getting into such interesting things. And if you go on, I'll forget them all. Okay. <laughs> you just refer to the experience itself. Now, is there such a thing as the experience itself? It seems kind of obvious that there must be. And you seem to be equating qualia with that. Uh, let me just dismiss qualia briefly in the sense that it's such a complicated word with such awful philosophical background that I think it's not really helpful. Because some people say, oh, it's got to be ineffable and it's got to be this, that and the other, and then they can demolish that. And the, So I, I, I'm not a philosopher, I don't want to go there. Let's go instead to your kind of equivalent, which is the experience itself. So I'm looking at those green trees. The way I'm thinking about it is if I were now to stop talking and shut up and sit here for five minutes and let everything settle down, what would there be? And would it be right to call it the experience itself? There would be, because my eyes are open, there would be stuff happening. And that's all I call it, stuff happening. And you can call it green if you like. This is not quite what people mean by qualia um, because they treat qualia as something extra to the processes that produce it. So that's why I don't want to use that word. But well, then you asked, well, what is it that's being deluded? What is it that's being deluded is the speaking self, the one that's then gone away. I mean, right now, um, this, this organism here chatting away to you using words um, is, can very easily start using words like, consciousness, qualia, experience itself, and so on, in ways that are um, that take you away from that directness. 
Mm. And of course, we know, you know, as well as I do, that in many of the, the, the meditation traditions, um, that it is said that in the depths of practice, nothing can be said about it. And that's how I feel. I mean, if I were to, as I said, to, to calm down now and just be watching that tree blowing in the wind mm. and, and stop talking about it, there'd be something that, about which I can say nothing. As soon as I start saying it's green and it's the wind blowing, I'm, I'm, I'm adding stuff on. But there is something. There's something. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. And I'm back to, ah, what is Isn't it? that it? Isn't that the thing we're talking about when we talk yes, about? Yes, yes, yes. And if you remember, so, some half an hour ago, I, I was then pulling, I often do this, I pull my hair and go, ah. Then the something is real. And if the something is real, then it can't be an illusion because it's real. That's No, 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 no. Okay, okay. What's the, the illusion is the way we talk about it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and I actually, you, you used delusion and went back to illusion. I like the word delusion because, um, which is a more sort of wordy thing, if you like. Yes. When we start talking about the brain producing consciousness, that's when I'm saying we're deluded. Okay, we can, you know, look at brains in scanners, etc. But then once we start to say it's producing this amazing magical experience, I think we're wrong. In that sense, we're deluded. So people talking, writing books, all of that, um, I would say most of us are, del are deluded in the sense that we fall for false intuitions. We can't help falling into dualities of various kinds. We're at the stage in this, you know, wonderful scientific, philosophical, practical investigation that we really don't know how to how to tackle consciousness that's why you know i often give talks called the mystery of consciousness it's really a mystery it's very very difficult but we can at least say that well i would say and dan dennett would say and a few other people would say as soon as we start talking about brains producing consciousness or if we talk about me doing something consciously or not or me being conscious of the tree or not we are deluded those words are not accurately describing the nature of the world. And that's what we're trying to do in meditation and in science. We're trying to accurately face the world without, without imputing false ideas to it. And I think that's why, coming back to a much earlier question of yours, I have found my Zen practice and my science have come together because they're both disciplines where you have to really observe hard and you have to throw out any ideas that don't work. Yeah, Zen has a major concept in it about the our artificiality of language and constructs and categories that we place around reality. Yeah. Um, so when you say um, we're not describing the nature of the world when we talk about these things, I imagine that you're thinking of the nature of the world as the XYZ coordinates of all these different particles, uh, <laughs> things and how they're interacting with how they're moving around a four-dimensional formula of this interactive natural universe right and if that's the case then I'm really curious because I don't see very much conversation in all of this uh, subject matter um, about the implications or possible implications of complex systems theory what are your thoughts well, about complex systems? Uh, let, let me take up what you said there about, you know, the four dimensions and the atoms or, or, or whatever. I, no, I, I, am, I am more perplexed than that. So I had to say the world, if I did say that, I think I did, um, because I don't know what else to say. That's why I say, well, what is this, which doesn't commit me to any more word than that. When I think about what is this, I can take the sort of physics view that it's all made of atoms and stuff, but I suspect there's something deeply wrong in the heart of that. I mean, we all know the conflict between um, uh, special relativity and quantum mechanics and so on. You know, the, the physics is not, is not sorted. There's something very weird going on at that end at, at the very small. So, you know, I, I'm holding that and I'm not a physicist. I'm just holding that kind of in abeyance. It may have to go. The idea of, you know, geometry and atoms and everything and then i'm looking at the other aspect as it were my experience sitting here now i'm talking like a human normal human being who thinks i'm here and the you know i'm conscious of these things out here 
and I've got the, the, the problem of duality because my experience doesn't seem to be to make sense in terms of all the atoms you know this is I can't see them um, and they, that, that doesn't make sense and, and I get into duality so somehow we have to throw out conventional dualism and see how it's all one I can't see how to do that at all which is why I would hold off from you know in my deeper thoughts to myself um, I hold off from assuming anything about atoms and so on and I struggle to understand what can give rise to people who think they are conscious who think they are separate minds from everybody else in a world that clearly is all in all one they can have experiences of that and then go back into duality and we talk in a in a duality way so no i'm i'm, th I'm overthrowing almost all these things which is kind of why panpsychism sort of appeals because um if you got rid of, of dualism there'd probably be something like that i don't know you see i really don't know well this um concept of you know you you almost said something else and then it, it seems like or I thought you were almost going to say something else and then you said something different and you said uh, what is it that gives rise to and then you said people thinking that they're having consciousness and I thought you were about to say giving rise to consciousness and <laughs> so you said people thinking that they're so my question is if they are wrong then there's an experience they had that made them think A instead of B, isn't there? So by definition, they experienced something. And if you just define the, that illusion, that delusion, as the phenomenon we've been discussing, does that get us out of the woods? I don't see a way out of the woods. Okay. <laughs> um, when you say they had an experience, you know, there's got to be a them and an experience and there's a duality there. You, you, you're probably familiar with this yourself and, and, and many listeners will be too. You can drop into certain states, whether that's through meditation or by taking acid or some other method, but you can drop into certain states when it's absolutely obvious that there isn't a you and an experience. There's just whatever it is. Mm. As soon as you call it an experience, you're almost implying there's got to be an experiencer, but there doesn't have to be. And, and you know, men, many of us have, have discovered that. This is why, or it's related to why I would say that when somebody says, oh, I was conscious of this, I experienced this consciously, they are adding a whole bunch of words onto whatever made them say that. And it's the whatever made them say that that I'm trying to get down to. And it's very, very hard. And it the only like way I get there is by dropping all words. I'm sorry. It sounds like our science and our math and our language are all very ill prepared for the realities that we're discovering about yes. the universe. Yes, they're, they're not designed for the purpose of understanding um, the truth about this. Yeah. It's very interesting, this, because at, at two levels, this is true uh, in terms of evolutionary theory. In terms of our genes basis, we are not designed, and nor are any other animals to have the best possible view of the world. So our visual systems, our hearing systems, our touch and everything else are not designed to give us the maximally accurate view of the world. They're designed to keep us alive yeah. and to mate and, and pass on our genes. Run so what's and... useful for an animal like us to see in the same way, you know, I can see um, buzzards flying up in the sky above my house and they will have very different visual system from a human because they are designed for floating around up there and then and get some tasty little animal eat it um and my cats and my chickens you know they've all got different visual systems so at the genetic level there's that but then at the memes level because once you know humans started speaking and passing ideas around and, and so on they got memes the memes have driven us to create languages which are easy to transmit from person to person which help us to get by in the social world that help us to get into groups and protect ourselves from dangers and all of those sorts of things they're not, our, our languages were not designed to give us a maximally accurate view of, of the universe. They were designed for, for, for more practical purposes. This is not a surprise. I mean, science is always struggling against intuition. 
you know, our intuition is that, you know, we open our eyes and we sort of look out and it goes that way. Well, you know, it took centuries before people realized that the light's coming into your eyes or, you know, the sun looks as if it's rising. Well, we now know that the earth is turning. So our intuitions start out you know, very often and science has a long, slow slog. And what about evolution? I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the idea that for something to be as beautifully designed as that tree out there that I've been watching all this time, um, you know, the intuition is there must have been a designer. And there are still billions of people on this planet who believe that there had to be a God who designed us. And there doesn't have to be, because as soon as you understand natural selection, which I should say is hard to understand because it's so counterintuitive, but once you do, then you see that there doesn't have to be a designer. And so science is constantly battling. And the thought that we're still battling in the 21st century against the creationists and, and intelligent design people, it's just, you know, mind boggling. But it shows that what you were just talking about, it's really hard to throw over these, um, these very basic intuitions that we start from as kids, we build up with our language, and we end up as adults with a very, very deluded view of our own nature. And, and you've learned this in Buddhism as well, you know, um, <laughs> greed, hatred, <Yes>. and delusion. <laughs> what do you make of the concept of emergent properties in complexity? Oh, what an interesting question. I don't think I understand the concept of emergence at all. I mean, it's all very well to say, you know, wetness emerges from... The, oxygen and, and hydrogen getting together to make water it you know that, that some higher level there's something that's emerged that wasn't there at the lower level but then are these levels intrinsic to nature or are they just something that we've made up when we try to understand something that's the sort of question that comes to me when i try and think about that and when i infer that you might be thinking about all the people who say that consciousness has emerged during biological evolution well i don't know what they mean it, it's not that i think they must be wrong i don't know whether they're right or wrong because i don't know what they mean and and people do bandy this word emergence around as though it, it as though it solves the problem and i'm not sure that it does if consciousness is a delusion does it matter if people suffer or experience pain or other beings ah very important question. Does it matter? Uh, John Crook, the Zen teacher I told you about, wrote a, a lovely poem, which used to upset me, but I love it now. Nothing matters and everything must go. Yet love is having the heart touched in the valleys of suffering. Nothing matters. Ultimately, no, nothing matters that pain hurts and there is suffering. There is a way out of suffering if you think the, you know, if you take the Buddha's words as truthful. And what is that way? It's the self who suffers that is the problem. And the ending of suffering is loosing the chains of the belief in the self who is doing and having and experiencing and suffering. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's not yeah. easy. To, it's not easy to understand, <laughs> and it's not easy to practice. But you know, we plod on, and I think that's the way that it goes. You talked about a state uh, that we reach in meditation, where these things become more obvious to us. Um, and then also earlier, you talked about your profound experience in 1970, and um, so I just want to touch briefly on altered states in general. Uh, and what role they can have for a, a spiritual naturalist in their practice. Um, to me, it seems like the function of altered states, by function, I mean our, our preferred function within our personal practice might be to help us more intuitively and directly know something deep down that we maybe only before intellectually uh, believed or assessed or assented to. So um, interconnectedness, uh, interdependence, um, the uh, Buddhists call it dependent origination, uh, the uh, 
um, the illusion of the self, um, things like this that might help us. You were talking earlier about how our intuitions have misled us in a lot of ways, and science has shown that the non-intuitive is sometimes true. Um, and I think sometimes in a personal practice, we're trying to really adjust ourselves to reality and in our deep character and our responses and the way that we naturally respond to the world. And so we're trying to shape our character. And sometimes I think these profound experiences have a character shaping effect in a way that reading or just an intellectual ascent uh, does not. Um, what do you think of that? Is that? Yeah, I think it's very important that um, it, 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 within Buddhism, the idea of understanding in something intellectually and working at it with words is often decried. Oh, that's not the way, you know, that's, that's not the true, you know, whatever. But it is a root there. I think it's very interesting and, and probably relates to what I said earlier about wanting a, a Western teacher who's used to talking about things in this way. And John Cook would, would say things like, when we're working with koans, which I, I very much enjoy working with koans. Um, you know, we have Western minds. We will go at things intellectually. That's just how we're brought up and we will do it. Do it. Do it. Because it will wear itself out. Mm. And in, in the book I mentioned, um, Zen and the Art of Consciousness, there are several koans in there that I worked with, with him um, on, on retreats. Um, and, yeah, I'd be really formal about it. Right. Yeah. One of them, for example, was there is no time. What is memory? I thought, okay, I'm going to agree with there is no time, and then ask what's memory. Then I'm going to disagree with that, and then ask what's memory. You know, and I lay out a tree in my head, and I go down all these paths, and that would take two, three, four days, and it just eventually, you know, it takes you somewhere else, and changes the way the floor appears in front of your eyes, sitting there in meditation, or the way the world passes through you as you walk in and kinhin or you know whatever it is it, it begins to change and so i you know i i think i i don't want to push aside the intellectual effort at all and sometimes john crook said well what do you think the buddha was doing under that tree he was thinking <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's true but it probably was to some extent he was thinking and thinking and thinking and that thinking changed the way he related to the world so what we then find if we do a lot of this thinking and a lot of meditation and letting go of thinking um, is what you've described there, the shift from knowing something intellectually to knowing it, knowing it. And that's fundamental to a lot of the things that you and I've been talking about in this, in this past hour. Um, where do we go from there? Just keep on practicing until things become clear. But then you want to come back and talk about it. So in a way, we've been talking about that, haven't we? How you get yeah. into, a, into a state where stuff is happening but not, happening to anybody and then you come back and talk about it and it all sounds rather stupid and, and idiotic we have but that little irony on on this program a lot as we talk about uh being beyond language and talking but the whole yeah. show is talking but yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> we have to communicate so um okay well let me wrap up here by coming back to your book that just came out um you said that uh although you had written beyond the body uh back in the 1980s 82 i think uh, that we have these new technologies now that allow for more of a real time uh, uh, observation of mental functions. Uh, am I right about that? Did I phrase that right? Yeah. And so this has allowed a lot of new insights on what's going on in the brain to produce these. One of the things in your summary of your book that you mentioned uh, that I really liked uh, was even we've even shown that we can induce artificially a lot of these experiences, um, yeah. which is very illuminating. So I, I would advise everybody to check out the book. Again, the, the name of the book is um, Seeing Myself, Seeing myself. The, the New, new Science about and Body Experiences. Yes. And so uh, you can get it now. I guess they can get it on Amazon, other booksellers. Well, so. I have to tell you, and this is terrible, that um, I mean, I, I'm assuming that your podcast goes out all over the world. Um, but at the moment, you can only get it in the UK. And oh. we're struggling to get um, it published in the States as well. It's supposed to be happening in, in a few months' time. 
Um, so I'm afraid that your people are going to have to wait. And I only just learned this very recently. I thought it was coming out simultaneously, but apparently yes, it we is. Have, we have listeners all over. Um, we have several in the UK. So for those folks, feel free to get the book now. And what we'll do is, um, so as soon as you know something about the US release, let us know and we'll make another announcement at that time to our right. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, I, these kind of discussions, especially with someone like you, always leave me wishing I could go on a retreat and talk about this stuff for days and days. Uh, well, uh, you probably could. I, I'm just saying, I, I think, why don't I spend more time on retreat? But hey, we live in the real probably world. Probably no more uh, wiser for it, though, but uh, still very entertained and uh, very stimulated. And I'm going to be thinking more about this. I'm going to check out uh, some more things that we talked about today. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, for being well, me with too. Us. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. It's great talking to you, and I'm horrified to see what the time is. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I didn't sorry, get it as much as I was enjoying it. <laughs> Thanks right. very much. Thank Daniel. you. Bye bye, and bye bye to everyone else. Thank you for listening. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Jay Forrest is our technical director. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.